We would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land which we record this podcast and pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. We would like to extend the respect to Aboriginal people listening today. This weekend, the whole of Australia is voting in the referendum to change the constitution for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to be recognised as the First Nation peoples in the constitution. The Voice is a committee, an advisory group for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples to give advice to the government on matters affecting them today, tomorrow and in the future. Thank you for joining us today on the PSA CPSU New South Wales podcast. I'm Marianne Ledich, Manager Com- Campaigns and Communications, and I'm joined here today with two of my colleagues. The first person I'd like to introduce is Malcolm Cecil Cochran, who is our Relationship Manager, and next to him is Ricky Walford, our Aboriginal Liaison Officer. Welcome to you both today. Thank you for taking the time to come and speak to me. What we are going to talk about today is pretty obvious and on Saturday it's the referendum. So we're going to talk about the voice today. But before we get into that, it'd be really great to just have a bit of a background on you both, what country you come from, where are your family, where you grew up and we take it from there. How about you, Mel? We'll start with you first. Me first. Yes. Unbelievable. Thanks, Marianne, and thanks for the kind introduction. Uh, yeah, I was born and uh, raised in Berapai country. I'm from a small Aboriginal mission called Perfleet, which is just outside of Taree. All my family, uh, brothers and sisters and extended family, they all still uh, live in Taree. I've got three members still living on the mission and um, the uh, other three are living in town. As in, in, in Tari. Tari itself, yes. How about you? Yeah, good morning, Marianne, and good morning to the listeners out there. Um, my, obviously, I come from uh, a small community at Walgett. I was raised and I suppose my early childhood was spent on the Namai Reserve, uh, just outside of Walgett on the, the banks of the Namai River. I spent my early childhood there till I was about five or six years old, and then uh, that's my earliest memory of living over there. Uh, in a tin shack, dirt floors, uh, with my grandparents back in the day. But then we moved uh, probably early, late 60s, early 70s into the township of, of Walgett, uh, a community of about two, two and a half thousand people. And I um, certainly have some fond memories of uh, the township of Walgett growing up there and uh, spending all my um, adolescent years there till I was uh, just about turning 18. So I went through... Uh, Junior school, uh, primary school, and then uh, secondary school, and uh, finished my HSC there in 1981 before I moved to Sydney and been in Sydney for the last 40 odd years. Camilleroy, uh, uh, Gumbanga, Ualea, uh, I've got a bit of a mixture of uh, all those different cultures and heritages in my blood. Uh, my mum's a Camilleroy woman from uh, Walgut, my dad's um, Bun- uh, Gumbanga, Bunjalung from the North Coast, and um, you know, so uh, proud of my you know, cultural heritage and certainly. Proud of uh, coming from Walgut, um, and, and many of you may uh, may know that we recently won the uh, Aboriginal knockout too. So, uh, yeah, good luck to the Walgut Congratulations on that. Yeah. Now, yeah. we did have a conversation about this the other day. Uh, is knockout next year in Walgut? 
Definitely won't be in Walgett. Uh, Walgett, <laughs> Walgett got two two motels and one leisure centre out at uh, six mile out of town. So I don't think they could cater for the uh, the likes of the knockout. But you know, it's a, a got a proud history of uh, connection, and some of our uh, founding members of the uh, the great event have, have come from Walgett and started it up way back in nineteen seventy. So. Uh, we certainly have a great connection there, and you know it's it's a proud history of uh, of involvement with the Aboriginal Rugby League knockout over all those years, some fifty odd years now. So it goes back a long way, and uh, we're certainly proud to be a part of that. And um, and our forefathers and our founder members are coming from Walgett, Dan Rose, Bob Morgan, and uh, and Bill Kennedy, are three of our leaders from that uh, that community. They obviously thought and got together with some other um, well-known gentlemen throughout uh, New South Wales to start up that concept of the Aboriginal knockout and, and congratulations to them for a great legacy that's left behind. Yeah. It's a very important legacy too, isn't it? Aboriginal people really get involved with knockouts, so it's great to see it getting bigger and better as the years come through. Well, Marianne, it, it's, it's the biggest um, sporting, social and cultural event in the Southern Hemisphere and, you know, it, it, of that magnitude, we have uh, over, uh, just recently, probably 45,000 people uh, passed through the gates up at Tugra, uh, at, you know, the Central Coast, uh, and it was a magnificent event. Um, you know, it, it gets bigger and bigger each year, so I suppose, uh, you know, moving forward, have to look at the logistical side of it and, and making sure that, um, you know, everything, everything's done the right way. And it caters for both uh, that cultural, sporting and social aspect as well as uh, giving people a, an opportunity to, to visit and, and participate in the knockout at all different levels, whether it's a player, a community member, an elder, whatever you like. So, uh, and, it, and it's open for everyone, both uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people to attend. Now, you're both foot, ex-football players, am I correct? Now, <laughs> I should let the listeners know I have no idea about football. But the one thing that I've known, Mal in particular, because we go way back, that every minute anyone has a chance, they talk about football with both of you. Well, yeah, I mean, Rick and I uh, do have a uh, a rugby league background and I've got to acknowledge uh, what Rick just said about uh, Walgett. They've been a tremendous um, rugby league team with success in the knockout. Um, And, of course, you know, just winning it again um, just highlights how how good... um, the team is and the and, and how structured they are. So now, did you both play in ever play in the knockout? Yeah, I was lucky enough to play in the early days, of course. Um, and I've only uh, ever won the one knockout. Um, <laughs> no doubt, Rick's um, been lucky enough to win a few more, but most definitely, um, you know, when you've you, when you've played in a knockout, it, it's a very very proud and historic moment as far as Aboriginal people are concerned. Yeah, Marianne, just in regards to rugby league, I suppose in general. Before I go on to the knockout question, and, and, and I'm privileged to be here, and I've known Mal for, for such a long time. We've played against each other in um, the old Winfield Cup days. Uh, Mal's won up me on uh, winning the grand final in 1987. I played into a 92 or 93, and unfortunately we weren't lucky enough to win one, but certainly, um, you know, I'm... I'm in awe of Mal in terms of, uh, you know, not only his uh, personal achievements, but certainly his team achievements in such a great side that they had back in the 80s. Uh, we had a, a good opportunity in the 90s, but unfortunately we come up a bit short. But the thing is, with, with rugby league and, and with the concept of the knockout, it, it's it's for everyone. Uh, I suppose with our careers in terms of the professional or semi-professional rugby league, as it was then, because both Mal and I worked and had jobs, 
uh, before it did go fully professional sure. back in the 80s and then into the 90s when I think it was 96 or 97 that they started to the um, the National Rugby League uh, and that went more professional then but we worked uh, jobs like everyone else and and then played footy on the weekends when we could but I, I, you know we, in terms of rugby league it was a big part of both of our lives uh, and you know only as junior Aboriginal boys were Growing up, we were fortunate enough to play Australian schoolboys, both of us, sure. which uh, sort of laid a platform and a, a launching pad for us to come to Sydney to, to play in yeah. um, the then Winfield Cup and get picked up by a Sydney club because, you know, I don't know what Mal's experience was like, but one year I'm at home in Walgut on the lounge room floor watching uh, Sevens Big League with Rex Moss co- uh, commentating and next year I'm down here playing in the Winfield Cup. So it seemed a bit surreal to me at the time that, you know, you'd... One minute you're there in in a small community like Walgut, and then the next minute you're down the big smoke where you got to learn how to catch trains and buses, and you know it was a bit, uh, I suppose it was a bit daunting at yeah. that period of time. But I was lucky I had my my auntie living down here, so she took care of me. Oh, that's great. Got to give her a plug, Auntie Christine. There you go. Always give Auntie Christine a plug. It's important. <laughs> and I was just going to add because yeah. uh, I didn't get, uh, I didn't explain is what Rick and I were talking about. I came from Taree to Sydney in 1981. I had 10 wonderful years at uh, the Manly Sea Eagles. And as Rick said, I was fortunate enough to win some personal um, individual prizes along the way. But And of course, in 1987, we won the grand final against the Raiders. Um, great platform that opened up a lot of doors for us as the years went on. Um, and of course, in 1981, I joined the New South Wales Police Force. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that because you've both been public servants, so um, you've been in the police. Yeah, in the police for, for almost 18 years. I had, uh, and of course then I went on to the public service yeah. um, before, uh, in 2001, I then came to the PSA, the PSA and yeah. I've been sort of here ever since. And what about you, Ricky? Like, where did you go? To, what were you doing when you were actually playing footy? Well, Marianne, it was, it's a bit ironic because um, when I uh, come to Sydney, uh, a year later than Mel in 1982, uh, which was my first year down here. And I, I, I suppose straight out of school, I was wondering what I could do with my life uh, away from footy. So uh, I, I, did, I sat the public ent- uh, public service entrance test just to, probably a block away from here at Town Hall House, which is yeah. where the old um, Commonwealth Employment Service was back in the day. So I sat the public service entrance test there, was fortunate enough to pass and, and got a... Uh, a traineeship uh, down at uh, then the Commonwealth Education. Uh, the branch was in Goulburn Street. So I started there in 1985 and um, worked uh, in the government agencies, uh, I suppose Commonwealth Education first of all. Then I went and worked with TAFE. Then I worked with Aboriginal Health uh, Health Branch over at North Sydney. Um, so I, I think I had a, a career spanning about 17 years across That's all fun. those different um Different uh, government agencies, and I, I certainly enjoyed my my time in the public service. And after that, I uh, I, I suppose my last public service type role was with uh, ATSIC before it was you know, closed down in two thousand and five. So I, I worked uh, then after that with the uh, the Australian Rugby League as their Aboriginal um, I suppose Aboriginal programs manager, sure. and with the New South Wales Rugby League uh, as the Aboriginal programs manager and. I suppose with uh, the Country Rugby League, New South Wales Country Rugby League, for a period spanning of about 14 years. So um, straight from the public service, straight into the private sector. Then uh, a couple of different jobs along, and 
um, you know, I've ended up here at the public service uh, again, which is, you know, it, I'm enjoying it and it's uh, a great place to work. Some really yeah. tremendous people work here and, uh, yeah, we're doing a good job. Now, both of you have worked very – so back in 2016 when there was a new leadership here at the PSA and Stuart Little became the General Secretary, he uh, his commitment to our Aboriginal members was to create an Aboriginal council. Um, and both of you work very closely with Aboriginal council. And I think that this is our second round of council. Am I right? Or third? I think this is the second, 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 second term. Second term, yeah. yeah. So, second term of the Yeah, year. and what listeners should know is that this council actually endorsed The Voice and that went to the executive, which they endorsed The Voice. Then that took it to cent- our central council, which is the governing body of the union, which our members elected the delegates to represent them and they endorsed unanimously The Voice and here we are today, the PSA is supporting The Voice. And for those people that don't know much about it, The Voice is basically really quickly uh, an advisory group to the government on Aboriginal issues. Now, where do both of you stand with The Voice? Well, of course, I, I support The Voice, Marianne, and, and you've put it really succinctly there. If you think about what the PSA have done when I was here the first time around, we put in recommendations to set up an Aboriginal council um, and it didn't, the, that then management didn't do anything with it. It then came about where Stuart Little, when he came, um, when he became the Gen Sec, um, acted upon those recommendations. And the reason we um, set up an Aboriginal, or wanted to set up an Aboriginal advisory council at the time, was to do exactly that, to give the executive some advice around Aboriginal issues across for New South Wales Aboriginal public servants. Yes. Um, who better to give advice around um, New South Wales or New South Wales Aboriginal public servants than Aboriginal public servants, New South Wales Aboriginal public servants. And that was the whole premise of it. Um, and executive could then feel comfortable going to council and saying, asking any question they want and um, having a collective of, of uh, people uh, being able to then come back to the executive um, with a position, ideal. And when you look at that, it's exactly what's happening today, the question of being asked of our communities um, about uh, who best to give advice around Aboriginal, whether they be issues or matters, than yeah. Aboriginal people. Um, and it would be conceded by all of our community, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal, that um, that is that would be the best practice possible um, to give advice. Who else could get into our Aboriginal communities? Aboriginal people. Who best to give that advice? Aboriginal people. And and that's fundamentally, and is the question being asked uh, around um, the voice at the moment. And, and these are my opinions. Yes. Um, and, I, and, I, and I stress that, that um, I firmly believe that Aboriginal people are the best people to give advice for Aboriginal issues or, and Aboriginal matters. Uh, Mary and I, I agree with Mel and what, what he's saying, but I, I just want to go back and make a few acknowledgements, if I can, in terms of how the uh, the Aboriginal Council was set up. And, and it's a credit to Nicole Jess Stuart Little and his executive team for taking that uh, initiative and, and, and establishing the Aboriginal 
uh, advisory council, and obviously uh, homage should be paid to Mel Cochran, who was a former Aboriginal liaison officer, but now lets me know that I'm that person and he won't <laughs> take any responsibility for the duties that I'm supposed to be performing. But does he say that quite often? He too? does say that, yes. so I'll never forget it. I think it's embedded <laughs> in the back of my mind. But also I'd like to acknowledge Anne Weldon, who was a former uh, Aboriginal liaison officer there. I think she done a pretty good job. Um, yeah, I'd... Known Anne for quite some time, and uh, obviously uh, she retired at the end of um, 2022, uh, and was instrumental in, in, I suppose, shaping the format of of the council and leading them over a pretty tough period of time during COVID, uh, and and everyone struggled during that period of time. So the thing is, uh, with those acknowledgements, you need to, I suppose, work out who set the platform, dug the well, so to speak, before you can go to the next level. And I think that's where we're at now with The Voice. There's been people who have gone before um, the group that's in there now, talking about the Uluru Statement and Statement from the Heart. But the thing is, we've got to acknowledge what's been done in the past. You know, you, you, you talk to the, um, Mr Lingari and uh, you know, Mr Yudapingu, God rest their souls, that they've fought the good fight and tried to get this recognition years and years ago and, and, and was struggling for a long period of time. So we're at a point now with the voice there and we've got the referendum coming up on Saturday where there's a decision to be made. But in terms of the the concept, it it, it is just from what I understand and this is my opinion and yeah, but everyone's entitled to their opinion from all the the, the inform, information sessions that I've attended and I've attended a fair few whether it's be as a representative of the, the New South Wales PSA CPSU organisation or whether it's just been as an individual community member, uh, most of the information that's been delivered has been quite succinct and uh, informative. Now, people have asked, what about the details? The details, the devil's in the details, but the thing is, this is just a concept, as, as the Prime Minister said, and it's not... The, the Prime Minister of Australia's voice, it's the, the voice of the people and there have been so many diverse groups that have been engaged to, to talk about and give their opinions on uh, what the voice, you know, what, what their support of the voice looks like. And, you know, right from the start, we're 3% of the population, Aboriginal people are 3% of, of the population in Australia, 26 or 27 million or whatever the, the, that figure is. So it, will always, it was always going to come back to the non-Indigenous population whoever that enrolled to vote, to, to, to influence the, the outcome of the, uh, the referendum on this Saturday. So you know, that, that's where it is at the moment. And in my opinion, the, the voice provides a, uh, a different alternative to what we've got in place at the moment. Uh, that people say, oh, well, you know, that's, there's all these different agencies there. There's so many billions of dollars that's been injected into Aboriginal affairs and to try and fix the Aboriginal problem. But it's not the Aboriginal problem that needs to be fixed. It's other mechanisms that have been put in place for such a long period of time under different governments that have been in, in place and that that need to, to be adjusted and, and looked at and talked about. And you know, fresh eyes come in. People say, oh, it's the same old suspects, the usual suspects are getting the elitists and things like that. But I don't see it as that because the so-called elitists are there fighting the good fight for trying. And, and, and I get the... There are no campaigns opposition to it as well. There are prominent people on that side. But the thing is, how do you make change? Do you make change by leaving things the same? Certainly not. You've got to take a chance to, to have a look at something that may work. If it doesn't work, well, 
then, you know, I suppose the frightening thing for, for many Australians and who are going down a different pathway in terms of their no campaign and, um, and and they're entitled to that is that they're scared that all these other things might happen. But for me, I think it's just a, a group of people that will be elected from their own communities to talk on behalf of their own communities to say, well, okay, these matters need to be addressed in our community, these things that we need to have. The necessities that make our community run, you know, more viable, more op- give us some more options for our kids, better education, better employment opportunities, better housing, better health, all those things there that are identified in, in the gaps that's not closing that need to be addressed. And who best, as Mel said, the Aboriginal people who have been affected. It's not the non-Aboriginal people who are going to be affected by these decisions that you know, are going to happen on, on, on Saturday with the referendum. I'm glad you said that part because there are a lot of people that have been told that they will be affected. For all intents and purposes, no one will be affected with a yes outcome. Is that correct? Apart from Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people having a voice to Parliament. Well, Marion, I'm, I'm going to probably go in a limit here and say that Mal and I won't be affected yeah, you know, we're Aboriginal right. people, Fair enough, yeah. and we might have an opinion here that we would like to see this happen because our belief is that there are a number of Aboriginal people on the broader scale that need to be helped. You know, yes. and, and we're not doing it because we think that we're going to get some benefit out of it. Personally, it's about the people who need help. What's well, about the and, Aboriginal? And, and, and everyone goes back to say, "Oh, well, there's not there's National Indigenous Australians Agency." This there was there was ATSI. ATSI was corrupt, but you could say that about a number of different government agencies yes. that are in the mainstream <clears throat> that have had their problems. But did they get disbanded, shut down, defunct, or whatever it is? And all are getting fed with um, or, or propped up through government government funds. So my thing is that if there's something there that may work. Um, you've got to give it a try. Absolutely. And I think the, the worrying thing is that people will get concerned about the constitution because, oh, you know, can't change the constitution or want to muck around with the constitution. There's, a, there's an element of apprehension and not so much negativity, but I suppose just of the unknown. Because the thing is, if you change it, but look at the gay rights, the, the gay marriage plebiscite. Did that change people's lives? Has people's lives been affected by that decision getting up in the refer- um, in the plebiscite? The only thing that changed was that community having an opportunity if they chose to got to, to get married mm-hmm. um, in the courts, then it's their choice. So it didn't affect me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, it affects the people that um, want to have an option if they want to get married. They can get married. Yeah, yeah. And and I think the other thing that it it, it it, it, it's fairly, you know, I suppose important is that both Mal and I know a lot of non-Indigenous people that we've grown up with yes. and have played rugby league with, have commun- um, you know, connected with over probably 40, 50 years that we're, we're, we're not out there saying you need to vote this way or you need to vote that way. We're basically, when we have a conversation, if it comes up in conversation, we talk about it ourselves you know, but but it, it's everyone's right to make a decision. Absolutely. All we want to do is is to make sure that you know, everyone has the information there that's available to everyone. Please yourself if you you want to go and look at the finer details. That's up to you. But if you want to choose to do other things, that, that that's put. You know, everyone's got that freedom 
It's a democratic, a democratic country. We all live in that. Our, our, our democratic right is to make a choice that we want to make. But the thing is, my belief is that this thing could work. Uh, but if we, you know, we just need to give it a try. That's all. Oh, for sure. And as I've said to you, Marianne, if you vote no, then we're voting to keep the status quo. In other words, no change. No change. That's basically what it uh, means to me. Whereas if we vote yes, we're voting to do something different, try and change what's going on. We're trying to um, address the disadvantage for Aboriginal people. Now, you guys went down to Canberra. And for our listeners, if you have gotten our latest edition of Red Tape, we feature basically Canberra in the magazine and the Yes Vote. Um, well, I shouldn't say the Yes Vote, but the the Voice um, campaign. Now, when you guys were down there, you were talking minister to ministers exactly about what you've just said, Mal, about what can you change with Aboriginal health, education. How did that go out? Like how, when you met with those ministers, were they listening to you sincerely? And I'm assuming you're going to say yes. From from my opinion, yes, absolutely, because they understood what we were saying. That you know, we and we were talking about health, housing, employment, education. You know, as Rick earlier said about the um, indicators for closing the gap. Yeah, I think I, I hope I mentioned it earlier, but that was with the Aboriginal Council that went down with. Yes. Mm. The PSA and absolutely, and, and council acquitted the members of the council acquitted themselves very well when uh, with their interactions with the ministers. Uh, we, well, I certainly felt that it was very rewarding, and uh, listening to our councillors speak to uh, the particular ministers, I thought they they um, made their points very well. Yeah, but and, and also, Marianne, there was a delegation of um, some representatives from Central Council who accompanied yeah. the Aboriginal Council, and uh, along with um, you know, our General Secretary Stuart Little and, and our President Nicole Jess, they were in attendance as well. And I, I just watched—I'm not too sure. Most people would have watched um, if you're interested. The Spotlight Show last night on Channel Seven, talking about the Voice and the last pitch sort of thing. But you know, and, and Senator um, McCarthy, Melendiri McCarthy, made the point about, you know, there's, I suppose, the lobbying that goes on. And she sort of made a reference that, you know, like, we're, it's speed dating. You know, <laughs> and, and probably that was sort of a little bit about the the uh, the interaction that we had with the delegation. It was a bit, little bit like that because it was pretty, you know, I, I suppose the timing was, it, and it's, it, I suppose, testament to the... the yeah, the, the interest that it was shown by the ministers of their day, the federal government ministers, that they came along and, and addressed the delegation that we had there. And uh, we're, we're thankful for that because we did get an opportunity to talk to not only the um, Minister for Indigenous Australians, but the Minister for Health, Minister for Department of Environment and Planning, um, a couple of other ministers there, Mel, that I've turned to Mental sure. Health. Mental health assistance, uh, for and then we had the finance minister as well. So there was a, a large array of people there that I suppose would be instrumental in, in determining what the areas of the closing the gap, I suppose, uh, logistics would need to be, you know, looked at. And those ministers had that res those responsibilities for those areas. So it was good to have that delegation meet with all those ministers there, even though it might have been in a speed <laughs> speed dating situation. But certainly. We got a chance to put our, or the, the delegation got a chance to put their, their points of view across, especially the Aboriginal Council, 
some of our central council members just to ask questions and make make things known. And it's important for listeners to understand that that is union business because we go and lobby, I'll use your term, lobby these politicians to make sure we get good outcomes for our members. So in this case, it was really about Aboriginal matters and they were, our members were giving them a lot of information that they probably wouldn't have if they if we don't lobby them. So that's another thing that we do, not just in the federal space, but also in the state space. Um, and I know that you guys speak to the state politicians as well in these matters too. It's very effective when you've got um, our members talking directly to politicians because it's coming straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. It's not coming from us, which is fielded. It's coming directly from our members. Um, pretty powerful messages. Um, and in these cases, when you've got um, members of our Aboriginal Council speaking directly to the ministers, um, it uh, I find it to be very effective because they're able to then, whether you want to use the word lobby or not, but, you know, um, I think it's more appropriate that they're uh, as Aboriginal members of our community speaking with our politicians and talking about issues that are affecting them directly. Yeah, and, and I think so, or just to add to Matt, what Mal's saying, I think the genuine interaction between <coughs> the delegation and the ministers, uh, it could be seen, and, and that's that's what it's about, is, is having that genuine in, interaction and, and understanding where what the delegation is, is representing and looking at trying to achieve the outcomes that everyone desires, the positive outcomes, and that's why these um, advisory groups are put in place. And I think that's fundamental to what the referendum is about and trying to you know, set up is, a, is setting up a voice that's going to achieve positive outcomes which haven't been achieved in the past however long. You know, so we've got to make change and if, if, if you don't make change, the, everything stays the same. It's important for all Australians to be recognised as Australians. So I guess with the voice, it's really important that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders have that recognition as well. Is that something that you would agree with? Well, I certainly do. <clears throat> there are other Aboriginal people, of course, that have a different view around should we be recognised in the Constitution. Again, that's a varying degrees of opinion. But I certainly um, do agree that we should be recognised. And, and it comes back to this whole conversation that we're having um, and how I express it how I've explained to my my kids, my their, their adults, but how I've gone about talking to them, what this is all about. And I've just very clearly said to put out all the noise and with respect to all politicians, I said, put them all aside, do not listen to anybody and use a bit of your common sense. And I said, it's very, very easy. They're asking um, simple questions. Should Aboriginal, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people be recognised in the constitution? And... The second part is having a voice to Parliament. Should there be uh, an Aboriginal committee, or however you want to call it, a council set up to give advice to this government around Aboriginal issues or matters? And that's how I've explained it to my family and friends. It's pretty simple and pretty straightforward, and without complicating it and bringing all of these what-ifs into it, I've brought it all back to that. And I've kept it as simple as that because that's all this is asking. Um, and I have to thank you, Mal, because when this all started, uh, you and I had a conversation. I don't know if you remember it, 
I remember it really well because in my head, I couldn't comprehend that we had to, I didn't realise that we had to change the constitution because I didn't realise that Aboriginal people weren't recognised and Torres Strait Islanders as well. Sorry about that. Um, so when you and I sat down, I was a bit like myself. You know, this is this is insane. I don't understand why why we're doing this, and isn't this already here? And you said, Marianne, we have to change the constitution. And I went, okay. And a couple of people have done the same thing to me, and said, I don't understand what this means. And because of you educating me, I said, well, we have to change the constitution for this advice, the voice to be able to be a committee and that people agree with it. And when I said those words to a few people in the last few months, I said, and they were like, is this what it is? I said, yeah, it's, it literally is this. And they go, of course you're going to vote. Yes. Everyone should have the right to have a voice. And, and I even spoke to you about my auntie, (laughs) hopefully she's not listening to what I'm about to say. (laughs) Um, who came from Queensland and literally said to me, Aboriginal people will take my house. I said, where on earth did you get that from? I said, you know the government can acquire your land right now. And then I said this to you, Mal, just a couple of weeks ago, and you said, Marianne, you need to tell your aunt that we can't touch private land. And I guess the the real crazy stuff that's going out and like I know people that have said it and you just go, how on earth did you get to this stage? And it's the scare tactics that are being used. Is there anything that you can put more el- eloquently than I could in this matter? Again, I come back to what I just said to you. Put all the noise aside because you are going to get all of these competing interests and there are a lot of competing interests. And just come back to the basics of what's being asked. I firmly believe if you do that, hopefully you'll come to a position of, okay, this is what I think, and is that all you're asking me of recognition and um, having a uh, an Aboriginal voice to Parliament, in other words, Aboriginal people giving advice around Aboriginal issues or Aboriginal matters. And I can only put it as simply as that. We can go off on a different tangent and have all of these different conversations, but that's all that's being asked at this point in time. And as Rick said earlier about if you don't change it, then how can we expect to get a different result? Exactly. We have to do something, in my view, to to get a different outcome. Otherwise, um, as I said, if if we say no, then we are voting for the status quo currently. And I think... That would be disappointing in my view. Well, just <clears throat> from my perspective, Marianne, I think um, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islander people, the last thing they want is tokenism. So recognition is the first nation, uh, first peoples here in the constitution is probably that. Uh, without the voice, you're not going to get any, um, I suppose, genuine interaction and you're not going to get the outcomes that you would want to achieve. And I suppose the responsibility will go back on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to, if the referendum's successful, to prove their point uh, as to why they fought the, the fight to, to get recognition and the voice uh, as, as a package, basically. Because uh, the last thing that anyone really needs is to be patronised 
and I suppose uh, there's no genuine relationships in terms of the respect built. You know, you've got to be respectful if you want to build relationships. And at this point, there's uh, an element of not a real lot of that going around between both sides. So I hope uh, that that changes in the next few days, and then we could see a respectful result that comes out of uh, the the referendum on Saturday. So. But that's not to say that you know people don't have their their democratic right to vote whichever oh. way they want, and and that's in the end is is you know the, that's I suppose top of the list. But uh, I I certainly hope that people will look uh, at making some changes that are necessary. Well, thank you very much for your time, and I'd love to catch up with you both after the referendum, and that we can see if it's a yes vote, um, how it's working, if it with the government and what they put forward and if it's a no vote what's happening because um like you say mal like you if you're voting no you're voting for the status quo so um it'll be interesting to see what happens on saturday i'm very positive i feel like it will be a yes vote um and we'll stay tuned and Rick and I, of course, will be happy to come back and discuss with you anything you want. We'll talk about Rick's prowess. Prowess is his fast winger from the old <laughs> days of St George. I'll be happy to have that discussion with you at any time, Marianne. You know well, that. Well, I have to say, um, I will have to take you up on that offer. Um, I will have to get a crash course in football, and I'm probably using the wrong terminology, but... Uh, the one thing that I've learnt working at the PSA and knowing the both of you, you're very respected people out in the community. So, um, and I'm sure that our listeners would love to hear more um, stories about uh, your time playing in the league. And um, I don't even know if I've said the right thing there, so I apologise. Oh, good. And, and but look, thank you for your invitation today. To um, well, it's um, important. I chat. think it's important for people to hear from. Aboriginal people too, um, how important this is for you. Yeah, thank you. And and as Mal is my elder, I would respectfully <laughs> come back and uh, answer any questions that you might have. Well, thank you to thank you both for for coming. And um, no, but quite seriously, this this has been a great um, interview, and I hope people listening really um, get a little bit of how you guys are feeling. So this is great. Thank you. Thank you. Mary.